This is Collected Clan, Episode 11. gets to the Knights of Endless Pleasure line, I was kind of like, did she really put that in a song? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, I felt hey, like I mean, you... hey, it was more than any loves allowed. <laughs> Welcome to Collected Clan, the podcast about outstanding people I've met along the way. People with interesting stories, triumphs, and ideals. People who've made their mark in the world and in my life. I'm your host, Gregory Byerline. I've met a lot of people over the years and many people come and go. But these people are the company that you keep. Everyday people just like you and me. In this episode, I talk with my friend Bradley Ford about his career in music, our love of music and musicals, the impact of music on society through education, and so much more, including what it's like to have experienced a school shooting firsthand. This conversation took many twists and turns and returns upon itself in a woven storyline that created the longest episode so far. So this is part one of the two-part conversational biography. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to automatically receive part two in the next episode. If you're on an Apple device, simply ask Siri to subscribe you to Collected Clan like this. Subscribe to Collected Clan Podcast. Just to confirm, would you like to subscribe to the podcast Collected Clan, the company you keep by Gregory Byerline? Yes. Okay, I've subscribed you. And boom, you're in. So let's dive into this humorous conversation already in progress as we recalled the most recent time our professional paths crossed. You did do that. Is that, is that your last that wedding? That was my last wedding, yes. I was at your last wedding. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I remember Here I am that. starting to describe this. I was like, wait a minute. You were totally in the room. Was this, was this a joint DJ with a band? Yes. And the band was awesome. Yes. Yeah, I emceed and DJed a little bit, and then the band played, and the band finished, and I think I did the end. Right. That's yeah, all, and and you know, I think that Celine Dion. It's all coming. It's back all to coming me. back to me now. And funny about that song is, I can tell you specifically where I was the first time I heard that song. I don't know if I could tell you that. Because I am not ashamed to admit, I think she is a fantastic singer. Oh, she's amazing. And the first time I heard that song, I literally about wrecked my car when she hit those <laughs> those big belted notes. I was like, oh, dear Lord, I've never heard anybody sing like this. You know what I remember, though, about hearing the song? I don't remember where it was or when when it was. But I remember when she gets to the Nights of Endless Pleasure line i was kind of like did she really put that in a song yeah no. <laughs> i was like well I felt hey like i mean you... hey it was more than any loves allowed <laughs> <laughs> i just every time i got to that part it was almost like forbidden territory you know yeah. i'd get to that line you know when you'd listen to that song and i would just kind of snicker to myself <laughs> yeah like the junior high that we were Oh. wishing we were in. Oh, actually, I take that back. It wasn't that song that I was referring to in the memory banks. It was the I'm Your Lady and You Are My Man song from the Color of My Love album. Yeah, I, I know way too much about Celine Dion's albums <laughs> for a straight man. That's a good song. That's yes. a good song, though. Yes. Yeah, we are Celine Dion fans. Now, since then, I have found many other female vocalists that I think could sing her into a corner. But at the time, that was really my introduction to, wow, there's a difference between a singer and a vocalist. Yeah. And she's a vocalist. 
she has Oh Holy Night. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Christmas carols. And every year I make a Christmas list, and my goal is to not have any re- repeated songs on it, which is difficult to do. You know, which version of White Christmas? Well, I got to do Bing, you know, yes. and which version of whatever, you know, and you got to choose, make those hard choices for the season. Oh, Holy Night's one of those, and Oh, Come Emmanuel. Those two, absolutely, I, I will have three or four versions on because I can't yes. pick. Agreed. And Celine, Celine Dion's version of Old Holy Night's one of those. You know, you're listening to the fish, you know, driving the back roads, coming home from a gig, you know, in December, and uh, her version comes on. Next thing you know, the hair on the back of your neck stands yep. up, you know, and, and you get, all you other get bets the, are off. You, you get the chills, and then then you're choked up, you know, you got the lump in your throat because she just kills it. Agreed. And I love that we have completely gone off the script that doesn't exist. <laughs> Oh, have we started? Already. (laughs) Well, it's all recorded. Oh, there we go. Yeah, this is going to be good. I love this. (laughs) I am more than moderately... I did not think we would start with Celine Dion, I'm going to tell you. No, but I have to admit, I am more than moderately excited that someone else I know likes her. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least respects her for the talent that she has. Absolutely. Am I ridiculous to say that she's the uh, female meatloaf? (laughs) Ooh, continue. (laughs) Well, her big songs like that have arcs to them. And they come down, they go up. They don't always follow necessarily familiar arrangement patterns. Right. There's belting moments. There's whisper moments. That's what she does. She's all dynamics. Yes. And it's I get the same feeling. Everybody's going to think I'm out of my mind, crazy. <laughs> I get the same feeling when I listen to a Meatloaf song, like I would do anything for love. Uh, he does the same thing. He takes you on arcs through his music, through his arrangements. Maybe it's because they're all piano guys who are arranging these things. Sure. But it's fascinating to me because Meatloaf, for all of his ridiculousness, his name, his artwork, the song concepts it's all about that whisper to shout dynamic and the emotion that lies in between the whisper and the shout if you really pay attention to it she does the same thing i think i'll buy that i may be crazy but well that's for sure but um maybe not about this i I wish i could think of the the night that i sat there and really thought about celine dion versus meatloaf because that's probably scotch involved (laughs) (laughs) So this mental conversation has happened before tonight. Oh yeah, for sure. So like you've been down this road before? For sure, yeah, by myself. It's it's okay though. So you are all by yourself? <laughs> yes. Did it hit you like a bat out of hell? Oh, Eric Carmen was all by myself. Though. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, such a But good she thing. also covered that song. Did you know that? Oh my gosh, you're right. She totally did. She on totally the, on what I call the Black yep. Album because it's That's a right. black background cover. Do you know That's the story right. behind that song? Uh, the the original? No, or her, her, cover. her cover of it. No, 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 no. I don't think okay. I do. I'm going to, uh, I'll tell you the gist. I'm probably going to mess it up. So if somebody hears this and fact checks it, it's okay. Because I'm telling this from memory because my wife read the biography. And then she told me. So this is second, third hand. That was another David Foster production. He had, he had everything there. Celine walks in, having a day. She's really not feeling it, wants to reschedule the session or or not do the song or something like that. And he, you know, looks at her probably over his 
bifocal glasses and says, well, I can always call Whitney. <laughs> Ouch. She closes the door of the vocal booth, does one take. Of course she did. And storms out of the studio. Of course she did. And that was the cut. <laughs> of course she did. Something to that effect. She's that good. Yes. So I can continue the all by myself conversation and it's going to get weird because it's me. So sometimes when we would have movie night, just for, for fun, we would put on a Disney movie and then I would turn the volume off and I would turn on a mixtape per se, oh, a playlist. Lord. Oh man. And we would just watch the movie with the music playing in the background and see if lyrics of certain songs meshed up with the Disney character's mouth. This sounds interesting. <laughs> so, are, are they random songs appearing or are you trying? There's okay. no order. No, because you're no not orchestrating order. at all. Okay. You're, you're, you're going for gold. And if you hit it, everybody's on the floor, you wow. know, holding their gut in hysterics. And we just happened to be watching Aladdin. And there is a scene. I don't know if you remember where they're coming out of that hole in the ground where Jafar was trying to get the lamp and it all closes up and Jafar is yeah. out in the desert and it all goes back into the sand and yeah. he looks up and he shakes his fists, kind of screaming no. Yeah. And right when that happened, the chorus kicked in of All By Myself, Eric Carmen, and it was over. We oh, all man. absolutely lost it. I know that's a huge tangent and uh, do doesn't really uh, hold a candle to other Celine Dion stories, of course, but that I could I could keep going like this for a while. We want to oh, connect. Oh man, I, that would have been a moment for the ages. So okay, so clearly you and I have this deep love of music. Yours is a little more out front because mm -hmm. of your time in a band, plural time bands. And your day gig, which is actually is a night gig, as a DJ. So do you also have just a song lyric in your head for every quip and comeback to anything anybody says? I, I want to say yes, but I, I, I would be really like I'd, I'd hate to get stage fright if you tested me oh, on, sure. it, you know, yeah. on, the, on, on the recording. But it, it, it is funny that I can't remember to take the trash out. But, you know, walking through a room and I hear something on TV might trigger something. It, my Agreed. The encyclopedia in my head keeps songs down, music information. And I'm not even, I wouldn't even say I'm a good lyric guy, to be honest with you. Because, you know, I, I'll DJ events and some guy gets up and knows every single word to Nelly Air Force Ones. And I'm just sitting there going, I don't know if I know any of the words. It's just my memory imprints when there is a significant event or a song that is really meaningful to me. So yeah, it's if, if I pull from that part of my brain, there's always a, a line that pops up. Yeah, it, it's funny. I, I, I figure it's probably the same way for you as well. It is, and I am hereby giving full permission for this entire conversation to be <laughs> punctuated by a line or two from any song that pops into our head. That's perfect. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Oh, at any given moment. It can't be contrived. It just, it just <laughs> has to happen. Well, that's why I told you the all-by-myself Jafar story. I mean, it's not something I walk up to people and like, let me tell you what happened for right. night. They're just like, what? <laughs> but but man, for anybody listening, just pick a movie and put on an 80s soft rock playlist and just laugh. Just laugh. Oh, that's I'm I'm going to try that. 
And uh, and it, listeners, if you do that, please comment in the show notes the movie, the scene, and the song. Yes. So we can all enjoy that also. <laughs> oh, gosh. My mind is going like a bazillion miles right now, um, which means that lyrics are just going to bubble up. Yeah. <laughs> and if it doesn't, then, hey, I'll blame it on the lack of scotch or, or whiskey. Yes. Th- um, throw a dart and we'll start there. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Uh, so speaking of starting, um, tell me a little bit about the band that you were in. Um, mm-hmm. Early on, when you and I first met, I met you as Brad the DJ. And mm-hmm. we were, uh, of course, we were shop topic, shop talking music mm-hmm. and photography. And it turns out that, if I recall, my photography mentor shot your band and I think that's how I discovered that you were in Bleach. Oh, Alan? Alan, yes. Yeah. Thunder Image was the... Yes. Thunder Image was Group was his studio. company name. Yep. But yep. Alan Clark, um, I, of whom I am a direct descendant. I, I always like to say that because jazz players all the time will talk about their pedagogy and who they studied with. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm from the line of thus and so. Um, I, I am a direct descendant of Alan Clark. And Thunder Image Group, and I say that with great pride. <laughs> yeah, and no, and that, honor, that and honor. So the the band we were um, we were kind of all friends in um, at a college uh, now known as Kentucky Christian University. Back then, it was Kentucky Christian College, also of notoriety. Um, uh, another group that I had literally grown up with because they were my brother's friends. Uh, a band named Audio Adrenaline came from oh, that wow. school. Yeah. yeah, they got a record deal uh, with Forefront Records, and Barry Blair, the original guitar player for them, was also my guitar teacher. Uh, super smart guy. He's the guy that really took theory. Like I was taking music theory, but you know, as a teenager, but he was you know applying it to the guitar in a way that I'd never understood. So he was fantastic. So. I was the last guy to join the band. I had had another band in college with a good friend of mine who now lives in North Carolina. And we would, you know, our two bands would go play shows together. And I think he, I hope I don't get this wrong, but I feel like he might have been moving back home or wasn't going to continue that last, you know, like our junior year of college. And so the band, uh, which at the time was known as Muffin, and our our first t-shirt had a blue, big blueberry on it. It was... Fantastic. We sold a lot of those shirts. It's a little ridiculous, but we did. Um, but they were wanting to expand, you know, because we're talking, you know, you're talking 94, 95. Your grunge is kind of coming out. Right. You know, people were getting more experimental and pop and with that style of music. And so kind of the single guitar thing was kind of going away. So they were thinking about adding a second guitar. And these guys, I mean, my, the drummer was my roommate. I mean, they were we were all good friends. So it was just a really natural fit. So I joined and we kind of started from there. I invited Barry Blair. I'd, I'd sent him uh, a cassette tape that we made and he actually came up from Nashville and produced a demo to which eventually was passed on. And long story short, we ended up getting a deal with the same record label. Very cool. Which they promptly told us we had to change our name from Muffin to something else. Oh, and come on. I know, I know. I won't go into why they wanted us to change it, but, you know, 60s slang was, they kind of felt like somehow kids of the 90s would know 60s slang. And <laughs> of therefore, course we, they would. 
so therefore we we changed our name and i don't even remember how it came about i think maybe our drummer suggested it but we ended up coming up with bleach and that stuck and you know it, it made sense and we uh put out three records while i was in the band and toured extensively from i'd say late 95 96 into uh 2000 i left the band and then they were uh, let go from forefront and they kind of retooled and got a few new guys in the band and they went on to what i call their second life which was with a label called tooth and nail records so mm -hmm. it depends on who you talk to people really have two either one or the other distinct memory of the band a lot of people only like the first version and then there's other people that don't even know who any of us are who were in the first version of the band mm -hmm. they only know the second the band really lived two lives, which I think is remarkable in a sort of in a sort of way. Yeah, it kind of depends on who you're talking to. But there was like two distinct careers, both of which have I, I believe have great moments in them. I hadn't uh, I, I didn't know the muffin to bleach transition, although I am curious. Tell me about this muffin. Oh, the, 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 why they wanted us to change it? Well, why the, why oh, you the guys band? called They're, yourself Muffin in the first place? You, you got to remember, this is the age of uh, Green Day Dookie. <laughs> you okay. Know? Um, Weezer Blue Album. It was just ridiculousness abounding in rock and roll. And rock and roll was on the rise. And, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, Oasis, you know, Beck. This is that generation. So names didn't mean a whole lot. And nobody cared, you know. They yeah. just didn't want to. They just didn't want to listen to guys in tight pants scream anymore. So, yeah. you know, it's kind of a, a new era. And I don't even. I don't know how they came up with the name Muffin because that was, you know, I joined Muffin, uh, did not start Muffin. So that was kind of a little bit before my time. But like I said, we made these, you know, Ringer T-shirts. You remember those from the nineties? Oh yeah. So we had this big blue blueberry on there with a smiley face and, and it was the dumbest shirt I've ever seen. And we sold just as guys just touring around Indiana, Ohio and Kentucky on the weekends in between classes. We sold boxes of those shirts. If you ever come across a medium of one of those, I would proudly wear it. <laughs> I promise you. I have one. But I'm <laughs> sure it's a large because I don't think I was ever a medium. So. <laughs> Do send me a photo of that T-shirt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's definitely something for the show notes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I don't know why that name was picked, but people loved it. I think we spray-painted spray a sheet with the blueberry on it and hung it up because we were, you know, 20. and That's what just, you do. That's what you do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So with Bleach, what was the uh, coolest place or stage you played? Mm. Oh, man, there's so many. What's your um, high point experience being a guitarist in Bleach? You know, I, I'm going to go back to this one because I, I could pick a lot of different ones for different reasons. One of the ones that stands, well, there's two large events that stand out to me. The first one was... Three of the guys in the band, is that correct? Yeah, three of the guys from the band are from Indiana. And so word got out that we were getting a record deal in the local churches and colleges and schools. And so we played Indiana a lot during those college years. And so we were invited to open up, I think, at the Indiana Youth Convention or something like that. So we were actually on a big stage in a conference center. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I remember being physically sick to my stomach because we had never played in front of more than a hundred people at that point, I don't think. And there was probably two or three thousand, maybe five thousand. I don't I don't remember. It was it just seemed really big to me at the time. And I just remember being physically sick before we went on stage. And that's not me. I'm I'm not a performance anxiety person, but that one will always stand out to me uh, as being just like, oh my goodness, we're about to sign a record deal, and these people know who we are, and I don't know any of these people. You know, there was a time when you knew everybody who knew your music by their face. <laughs> one person was named Mom. You're like the other person was named yeah. Dad. <laughs> Thanks, mom, dad, Joey, Kate. Thanks for being here and tonight. His, and uh, his mom. And, right. Yeah. You new guy. We'll get to know you after the show. <laughs> yes. You know, it was that was the only worst. if you buy a muffin shirt, though. Right. So that one was crazy. And then fast forward a couple years, um, we were blessed. Some successes that had happened, and we ended up getting a mid-afternoon, I believe, slot on a stage. Uh, the name of the festival is escaping me. We're playing a festival and it was at an old speedway and uh, kind of the stage was built. Newsboys were going to play. Audio Adrenaline was going to play. Like there was a lot of big bands playing later in the evening. And we played kind of early afternoon. So we didn't expect a lot of people. But I think there were over 5,000 people there for our set, which blew my mind. And I won't forget that they knew the songs. They were singing along and then... We went, I remember we went to our tent to sign t-shirts and we ran out of t-shirts like within an hour and we had ordered thousands of dollars of shirts and we just ran out of shirts and there was a line wrapped around there and we got to meet every one of those kids that came by. That blew my mind a little bit. You know, that was, that was kind of a crazy experience and yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. So it was, it was crazy to go from the one where I was virtually throwing up and and then you know fast forward just a short amount of time to be in a place where people didn't necessarily should know us but they did and that was i guess that was wonder of the pre-internet era man that was old school marketing you know dollars you know through radio stations and television and bookstores and music stores record stores so uh pretty crazy i've often wondered what it would be like to either write a song or simply be in a band playing a song and then hearing the song sung back to you because people knew it. I remember that the, the first time that thought crossed my mind was at a Billy Joel concert and his first time through the chorus of Piano Man, uh, he stopped. Yeah. And the song went on. And I was like, what would that feel like to be? center stage spotlights on you your song going and you close your mouth and the song continues i I don't know what to attribute the feeling to i never had the feeling of oh yeah you know it wasn't that it was a feeling of pride like i was so proud that and and sort of in disbelief every time that somebody would sing our songs back to us um uh, i think it was pride uh, I was proud yeah. of that moment, you know, like the um, good kind of pride, not the, the good the kind of pride. No, yeah. No, the hum, the humbling <clears throat> kind of pride. You're, you're humbled that you're in a position that people know your music and you're proud of the fact that 
you wrote something that somebody else wants to sing. Yeah. I think it's a pretty crazy thing. And I'm, I'm with you, man. Anytime I see a show and somebody is singing or I'm singing, you know, the, the songs that the artist is singing, I'm, I, that moment's never lost on me at how cool that is or how cool that must be for them. You do get a connection to the crowd through that. And I know people talk about that and it's probably seemingly a trite statement, but artists do connect to the crowds. And I think part of that is that connection on the the lyric when people are singing it. And there is without a doubt a, a feeling of we're together doing the same thing. Right. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just a cool thing. I've often wondered, too, whether listeners resonate with the music of a song or if they like the song because they like what the words are about. Mm. And and I know the answer is, well, it's both. But which one is it first? And, and the reason I ask that is because, and I'm totally going to sound like the music snob that I am. That, <laughs> that That's a given. Um, and this can sound like, hey, get off my lawn till the cows come home. I don't care. <laughs> but there are bands out there that I know so many people are into. And I'm going, why? Oh, yeah. I've, I've why got are you into that? Because I've heard two or three songs and that was really about all I could do. Yeah. But they're playing the arena. So, okay. What I had to come, you know, I what had to is come, it? I had to come out on Facebook with one one time because I'm like I'm just going to get this off my chest. I don't understand why everybody likes this band, and I got I got flayed for it. But it was yeah. it was it was fine. Who was it? Uh, Incubus. I only know but, I only know they exist because I've seen the bumper stickers on the back of pickup trucks. People love that band, huh. and just never got it. I never got it. It's weird. Actually, I don't think I got any of the rock music in that, right. in that you know, 2001 to 2003 era, four era that, you know, there was a lot in there I just didn't like. But yeah, but I'm with you. I, I totally, I get that. And, you know, and they can say, well, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what the word, what the lyrics are, what the, I don't know what they're singing about. I'm like, but you're singing along at the concert. So somewhere in your head. And in your soul and your being, those words have stuck. You know, it's funny because I, I, I kind of thought for a while that I was the get off my lawn guy, you know, when it came to like rock music, especially. But there have been groups that have come out that have touched me lyrically, musically, what have you in recent years. So I know it's not that it's just really getting a connection to the lyric. Like I love the 1975. I like young, the giant. I liked Mumford and sons until everybody else liked Mumford and sons. And, you right. know, you know, but there was a period before they were literally, you know, opening up my cereal box and there was Mumford and sons there. There was a period where I listened to them cranked, you know, in my house while I was making breakfast in the morning to get ready to start my day. Um, there, there are bands out there that, and I'm, and there's a ton that I'm not mentioning, but so I know it's not a get off my lawn thing, but I do think it is a connection and it's just interesting how we, how the music business is, was based on making billions of dollars of figuring out how to limit the connections to the amount of people who would buy the most. And they always used to say it was girls in their early twenties who right. spent all the money. So that was where all the marketing was. You know, I was, my whole band was once told before our second record, because instead of eating ramen noodles every day, we were actually getting catered food. So we were told we got a little chunky and that we needed to lose weight. So 
you know, you tell a bunch of rock and roll guys they need to lose weight. So, yeah. you know, it, it's just a weird deal. That's counterproductive. <laughs> right. I was like, eh, I kind of don't like I'm doing 200 shows a year. When am I going to work out? So right. we just didn't. We just stopped eating. When am I going <laughs> to not eat at Denny's at right. 1130 at night or right. after midnight? Right. Moon's over my hammy at one in the morning every time. <laughs> every day. Every day. Um, chicken nuggets, God forbid. But uh, yeah, it, it it was the buying market and that was what it was all about. And they were gambling on who was making that connection. I think that all went away, you know, a little bit with the Internet. And you don't have a market. You're just playing to numbers now. So it's yeah. all about that mass appeal. It's all about that song that somebody can't get out of their head. Like Godier, somebody I used to know. I right. mean, you know, songs like that that just universally just blow people away. Yeah. And, and that, that would be one that I resonated with on the music side first. Because at the time, at least to my oh. ears, it was fresh. It was, huh, what was that? Play that again. Well, that was really cool. Play that again. What did he do okay. there? Never heard anything like that before. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then um, I couldn't even tell you now what the, what the lyric is about. But as soon as you said the name of the tune, I was like, oh, I know that tune. And I'm probably going to misquote this for sure or not represent it correctly. But I feel like I read an article at one time that Prince had reached out to him. Or had or had mentioned it in an interview, but the but the the gist of it was that Prince had thought that that was an amazing song, a hit song. Like that song resonated with him to such a degree that he would want to mention that to the public. Yeah. Wow. What a badge of right. honor that would be. Jeez. Exactly. Exactly. And then you go on and you got "Walk Off the Earth." You know the YouTube band. Yeah. Where they. they do all the covers and they do them crazy. They, that was their, that was their song that got millions, probably billions of YouTube hits at this point where they all five gathered around the one guitar and they all played the guitar together and they right. sang that song. That was the one that blew them up to international yeah. stardom. So something about that song. And, yeah. and I'd almost like to get a uh, mathematician to, Break it down into numbers. Yeah, <laughs> that um, song is 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 shockingly good and shockingly simple. And yeah, I could talk about it for probably a long time and analyze it because that's where where my brain tends to go. Is I, I dig deep when when a lyric hits me. Uh, it's the way I'm wired, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I tend to get attracted to the words also, or if the music hooks me first the lyrics will either keep me or lose me. Yes. And I can walk away from a song I like melodically if I think the lyrics are just asinine or, or whatever, just not up to, eh, <laughs> you know. Let me throw you a rock record that you may not be aware of that okay. I think that you should listen to. The, the band is The Catherine Wheel. The name of the record is Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, I believe it came out in 96, if I'm not mistaken. Rolling Stones rated it as one of the most underrated rock records of all time. Didn't sell a lot. They're an English band. Rob Dickinson is the singer who happens to be a cousin of Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden. Okay. However, they sound nothing like Iron Maiden. It's melancholy, stacks and stacks of 
guitars playing through English amplification with big muff pedals and, and then add in drums mixed low in the mix and then huge B3 organ. Excellent. And I've never heard anything like it. The music took me, one of the few records that I love absolutely every song on it. It's perfection. It's it's a journey. Don't pick a song. Listen to the whole thing. Start to it's finish. A, Good. Abs- absolutely. Which I think would be right down your alley. And on top of that, it was one of those ones that musically and sonically, the the soundscape captured my imagination. I, I don't think I learned lyrics to it for a year or two. And I started really getting into the lyrics. And then I started really falling in love with the lyrics on every song. And then after I kind of learned the lyrics, fast forward about five years, as I got off the road and I started, you know, I, I, I kind of got nostalgic and pulled up some CDs from my, my traveling days. And I started listening to stuff with really good DJ headphones, you know, the, the, the ones that don't cost 80 bucks at Walmart. So I put on a pair of V-Modas, which is my favorite headphone brand. And um, I started listening to it. And all of a sudden, man, I'm kidding you not, years Probably 10 years after this record came out, I'm picking up shakers and tambourine hits and things I'd never heard in the soundscape before. 10 years of listening to this record, and I'm still finding things in it that blow my mind. I love it. I mean, think about that. That's just crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Get the record. Listen to it when we're done. <laughs> I will. I, I'll, I will check that out. Uh, I had a similar experience. I call it uh, hearing in Technicolor. A few months ago, the Nashville Symphony played Beethoven's Fifth. Beethoven is easily one of my favorite classical composers. He was the original rock star. His music has just always resonated with me. And people will be like, yeah, doesn't he resonate with everybody? Well, not always, but he does me. Hearing that piece live in that epic symphony hall that we have in downtown Nashville. It's beautiful. I heard things in the score that I had never heard before, even after binge listening to recording after recording after right. recording after this conductor. I want to hear how that one did. I want to hear, you know, what the what a German orchestra did it versus an American orchestra. Or what's this Japanese orchestra? What do they sound like on Beethoven's Fifth? You know, so I had this catalog of Fifth Symphony performances in my head, and then I heard Nashville Symphony do it. And the difference was that it was Nashville Symphony, because I'd never heard them do it yet. Uh, but mm-hmm. also that it was live yeah. in, instead of recorded and engineered and memorized. So, yeah, that, would, that was a, a Technicolor experience. It's an interesting years. thought because you made my brain go like 16 places really quickly, <laughs> um, <laughs> which tends to happen when I'm talking about music. But yeah. I, I want to be sure I get these points in. I don't forget, A, how do we know what it sounded like to Beethoven back then because we don't necessarily have recording? So right. What are we listening to, and is that the way it really was? Of course, the notes are the notes, but everybody plays those notes and conducts those notes differently. Um, it's and much... interprets the dynamics and exactly. uh, flourishes that he wrote onto the score, interprets it differently. Completely differently, and it's like the difference of, you know, if I want to go learn a Jimi Hendrix song, I can actually find video of him doing it and I can listen to the recording of him actually doing it. I can do the same thing and I can copy it. But you can't copy something that's only written on paper. All you can do is interpret it. So that's always absolutely 100% blown my mind when it comes to classical music. Because believe it or not, I'm actually a big classical music fan. 
as one should be. I love Beethoven, uh, but I'm also a big Tchaikovsky and Wagner fan. Uh-huh. Another another group of early rock stars. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say Mozart, but everybody says Mozart, so I won't. Yeah. But um he was a rock star in his own mind. I mean, and rightly so, he was fantastic, but he definitely yeah. would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He would have fronted poison in the 80s. Of course he would, with, with, a, big, <laughs> with a big blue uh, bandana and yeah. you know, tanning cream. But anyway, um, <laughs> the other part of that that I find fascinating is I believe there's an absolute connection to the ear and the eye. You know, we can listen to things all day with our eyes closed, and it's amazing what our brain interprets. But then when we see it and hear it, there's a whole other thing that happens in the way the brain fires. So you sitting in a symphony hall listening to a piece that's been written down millions of times since it was created the same way. Now you're not only hearing it like you would on a recording, but you're seeing. And who knows what caught your attention? Was it the oboe player? Was it the the viola? Was it the timpani? Was it what? Right. What was it that? you know, the, the input went in through your eye and connected something to your ear that all of a sudden now you're interpreting something completely different, which I think is a huge, huge impact on, on the way that our brain works within the senses, uh-huh. you know, and, and, and that's one thing that I had learned is I, I'm, I love wine and I, I got into the, the nerd part of wine, you know, the varietals and where they're grown in the earth and all that sort of thing. And that's kind of one of the things why they have you smell as well as taste because your brain interprets the signals separately and then together and it changes everything. Yes. And that blows my mind. I could talk about that all day. Yeah. Part of the technicolor of hearing that live also was guess what I was doing when I was listening to it live. Having a glass of wine. Well, that, but I was also actively <laughs> listening to it live. Yes. Doing nothing else. Yes. Yeah, there's no infringements on your attention. <laughs> right, right. And and there was an element of the visual that resonated because when you're when you're sitting in the, the seats and and we were literally like center of the room, maybe sixteen rows back. So it was you know, it's like Beautiful. we were sitting in front of a movie screen because it was just right in front of us. We weren't in a box. We weren't off to the side. The, the orchestra was front and center. So if there's a trill or not a trill, but a, a, a glissandos go up, but the ones that go down where it starts with the high strings and it literally does the wave. You could watch the bows mm-hmm. do the wave from stage right to stage left as it goes from the violins to the second violins to the violas to the cellos to the basses to the double basses you mm-hmm. can just <laughs> yeah so so perhaps that was it also but i i mean i did notice that and we saw that from above at symphony hall also we went to hear joshua bell and the um oh names escaping me now there's a big orchestra in england that he fronts oh i'm just totally drawing a blank um, but we we were sitting stage right box, like literally looking down on the first and second violins. Mm. And there was a moment where we saw this, literally this physical wave go through the orchestra, but we had this unique vantage point on it. Joshua Bell and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields was who that was. So, nice so uh, speaking to the, the visual connection to the ears... Yeah, there were things about those pieces that we heard because we saw it being played in addition to hearing it being played. Yeah. 
And, and you and I have discussed, we, we both have a mutual love for Phantom of the Opera. Oh, my word. Yes. <laughs> that could be a whole separate podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so, so what? So what got you? What got you into Phantom of the Opera? Because I can tell you, tell you what got me into it. It, it was a girl. Um, what got me into Phantom of the Opera? Being a cast member in community theater, uh, very late high school, early college. So this was like summer stock, if you will, the Muni Theater up in Springfield, Illinois. Here it would. I mean, we have the Tennessee Rep, which is. Not necessarily musical, but this was a musical outfit. They had a, mm-hmm. like a four show season, and they were they were all you know musicals. They weren't touring musicals because it was local cast. So I did several shows with the Muni, and came out of doing you know high school musicals and yada yada. yada and I wanted to go to the next step, so I had to audition for Community. It was you know to me it was like a musical all star sort of thing. So when I landed these roles in community theater, even though I didn't really know the shows that we were, that they were casting for, I was like, well, I'll, I'll go to the audition and see, see what they cast me for. Yeah. Um, got some chorus parts, got some lead parts, uh, just had it, had a great time. So as I'm getting to know other cast members, this is back in cassette days when literally it was a mix tape. I was telling a fellow cast member who was, I was in the chorus and he had a lead role. I think it was Fiddler on the Roof. I was a bottle dancer and he was Model the Tailor. Oh my gosh, we're like totally dredging memories I I haven't gone to in a long time. This is awesome. And I was mentioning to him that I wasn't as familiar with a ton of the of musicals as mm. I could tell everyone else was, you know, because they're you know they're quoting songs, they're quoting lyrics, just like as, we're, as, we're, the, the, as theater and, people do. Yeah, as the drama dorks would. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he made me, I think, five or six ninety-minute cassette tapes of like favorite, like highlights, his own personal highlights of musical after musical after musical after musical after musical. And it was almost the entire production of Phantom of the Opera <laughs> was yeah. his favorite. So my introduction Cats. to Phantom was literally Michael Crawford as Phantom and Sarah Brightman oh, as yeah. Christine, yep. which was, in my opinion, really good to launch it because, I mean, clearly the Christine role was written specifically for Sarah Brightman. Mm-hmm. His angel of music. Yes, his his very own. Yes, the the muse herself. But my kids really like it because we came across the 25th anniversary concert. With, as and we have the similar ex- experience because my daughter as well, and yes. she's still. And the not- Phantom will forever be Ramin Karimloo, and Christine will forever be Sierra Bogus. There will be no other duo, as far and, as I'm concerned. And, and let's be let's just be frank and honest. Michael Crawford and Sarah, you can't beat for the fact that they were the ones that stamped it. Yes, that there is just no comparison to that. But the 25th anniversary at uh, Albert Hall, right? Yeah, they killed it. Killed it. I've seen it six times. I've never seen anybody seeing it as well as he did. The Phantom yes. role. Yes, he killed it. Yeah, absolutely killed it. And you know, if I go back in time, we're talking 89, 90, maybe 91 when I've. 90 probably when I heard it for the first time. So we're still in the age of 
you know, I'm a guitar player. I love the big 80s rock bands. Everything was about pageantry at that time. Mm -hmm. I was an actor as well. I'd been acting since like third grade and acted all the way through college. So that was a big part of of the love for me as well. But my girlfriend had the T-shirt. She had the poster. She had the, the double cassette deck of the original recording with Michael Crawford. She had all that. She listened to it all the time, and I didn't understand it. I'm like, uh, hello, can you talk to me? And right. she's like, no, this is my favorite part, and, you know, headphones on. And I don't know if it's because we broke up or what. <laughs> I, I bought it, and I started listening to it, and it ended up being this thing, like, I didn't tell people, like, it was in my Walkman. And for those of you that don't know, Walkman holds a cassette. Yes, Google and, it. Uh, yeah, Google it. But I would be riding in the car and, you know, pretending I'm listening to Motley Crue and I've got Phantom of the Opera in my... Totally you know, me also. Absolutely. And I was lost in the lyric. I I have still to this day not heard melodies like that anywhere. Uh-huh. Point of no return melodies make the hair on the back of my neck stand up every... It just did. Just it did it, it just did me too. You, you can't see it on the podcast, folks, but my hair just stood up on the back of my neck, which is considerable since I have a lot of hair, but, <laughs> um, but it, it, it blew me, it blew me away. And then, you know, and then finally getting, because I think I equated it to the pageantry of like the rock and the heavy music that I liked at the time. I didn't see any difference. Truthfully. Yeah. His chord progressions in, in the structures of the, of the melodic lines were heavy. Mm-hmm. They were heavy and dark and, it was beautiful. And then you dig into some of the lyrics, which I know are not Andrew Lloyd Webber's thing, but, yep. uh, but Charles but, Hart, the, the, that partnership there, uh, the, the lyrics did what the melody needed them to do. And that's rare. Yes. So it, it's just funny because my daughter hadn't watched it in a while. And I love the, the fact that we're talking about it because she came downstairs for dinner, uh, maybe a week or two ago and said, you know, daddy, Hey, you know what we haven't watched in a while? We haven't watched Phantom of the Opera. So, um, you know, we dug out the 25th anniversary and, and watched it. And, and it's still just as magical for her as it was the first time she yeah. saw it. Yeah. Our kids know that they can get a yes out of us. All they have to do is say, can we watch Phantom? Yes. 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 <laughs> or if we're in the car, can we listen to Phantom? Yes. I know <laughs> we've been telling you no for the last three weeks on everything else you're asking us for. But you ask us for Phantom, you're going to get a yes. We should segue into Greatest Showman if we're talking about Oh, this. but but of course, of course, I started hearing rumblings from, of all people, from guys and dads hmm. that I respect and admire. Yeah. People that I didn't know were into musicals, and maybe they're not. Non-musical people were saying, oh my God, I just watched The Greatest Showman, and it literally was the greatest show I've ever seen. Uh, a, a buddy of mine who's like big time into superheroes. Watch it. I know because Wolverine was in it. Sure. And his comment was, holy crap, Wolverine can sing. I'm like, I know. <laughs> He's amazing. And dance. And yeah. dance. And yeah. like the, the, yeah, the whole nine. I, I, I did the same thing. I saw everybody loving it. And I'm, I was like, I know it's good. But once again, we're, we're all busy. It's just hard to get to the we don't go to a lot of movies because we just have crazy schedules. But there, there's a the turning point for me was a, a gentleman by the name of, of Mike Walter, who owns a huge DJ company called Elite Entertainment in New York. He's a guy that I've met. I've gone to some some courses with him. He's 
He's just fantastic. Owns a ginormous company up there in Jersey, New York. And he had posted on his Facebook page that he went to see it, wasn't that intrigued, wasn't really into it. And then he, the comment that I will never forget is he said, you know, about halfway through the night, he pulled his phone out in the theater and bought and downloaded the soundtrack so he could listen to it on the way home. Mm. And I think that says everything that you would need to say That's about that. That's all you that. need to know. It's The music is fantastic. It, it just was done. I love everything that it, it had to say from a you know spiritual, almost philosophical perspective. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was great entertainment, something I love that my kids were into. Although I will say now that my daughter and her friends and cousins kind of just run through the house and say, ooh, we love Zac Efron. We love oh, Zac that's Efron. Completely, it's, that's completely Molly, too. Absolutely in love with this guy. And I'm just like, what happened? Yeah. What, Molly. What Molly's the-, the same way. I mean, she texted Megan early tonight, and her, the emoji was like the, the emoji bride and like a dude in a tux. She's like, I'm just thinking about Zach Efron. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we watched it and she stood right up by the TV. And when there were close ups of his face, she's literally kissing the TV. <laughs> we're not even at the double digits yet. <laughs> so we're not even pre teen. We're at pre 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 teen. So, so, like two weeks after, though, we see Greatest Showman. Chris and I are sitting in the house and watch a movie. And I was like, okay, I just want something funny. On something light, and I will literally watch anything The Rock is in. I love him. I love Dwayne Johnson. I just want the world to know. <laughs> I don't care if the movie's crap. I think he's awesome. He cracks me up. So we're like, let's watch Baywatch. Oh man, let's do it. We did. No, I have no problem admitting it. We watched Baywatch because The Rock was funny. Zach Efron was in it, and there's this scene, and the he's got his shirt off, and he's like doing pull-ups or something, you know, and, and the guy's muscles have muscles, which have muscles. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And my wife was like, Oh, Hey. And I'm like, what is with my family? (laughs) And she's like, wow. Baywatch is for women too. Right. And all of a sudden (laughs) I'm like, he's a handsome guy. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't gotten to the point of emojis yet, but you know, I mean, there's still time. Yeah. Just yeah, uh, apparently he's seeping into everybody's psyche. So, which is funny because he's been around for a hot minute, but it's he's had a good year. Yeah. <laughs> so as, aside from the fact that I really think the world would be a better place if we all broke out of spontaneous song and dance, mm-hmm. which is what a good musical is and does. Shoot, it's even what a bad musical does, which makes it a, a good musical. Honey Python. That too. So it's. I mean, it was visually stunning. The the music was first and foremost is the star of the show. Um, yeah, I agree. I'd I'd have to go back and see what the Oscars actually were, but I really hope those composers got some sort of something from them, some recognition because it was just stellar. But I gotta tell you, I really liked. You you had mentioned the philosophy or the spirituality or whatever. I liked that he walked away from it and went back home to his family. Yeah, I just thought that was super cool. Yeah. And that the, you know, you know, and I mean, even the song from now on is all about, I'm not going to be blinded by the lights. He said, what are you going to do after the show? He's like, going to go home to my two daughters. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, I loved it. Yeah, I, I do too. I do too. And it, I think, and I don't want to get necessarily too deep, but that's, that's always a danger when you and I talk, but um, 
life can be looked at in a lot of ways. And I think most of our lives were fed this thing that your journey is one big, long journey. And you're constantly trying to reach the pinnacle, constantly trying to reach mm-hmm. some attainable or unobtainable goal. Um, and I think what the movie showed me is that some of those journeys are short. And it's just as short as him making that decision that he wanted to be to be home after the lights, you know. Yeah. I think we go on several journeys in our lives. And, and I felt that that movie showed that really well because the guy changed multiple times in, yes. in the course of his life, where, you know, whether it was an accurate portrayal or not of P.T. Barnum. But just in terms of the character in the movie we're discussing, I love the fact that it was up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, which I think is a more realistic view of the little battles that every one of us faces and goes through and tackles. Yes. That's what I liked about it because I, I think it put a, a beautiful, creative, passionate face to this man, but it was also very human, full of regret, full of mistakes. And I and I, I respected that they portrayed him that way because but that's life. Right. Right. Well, he just wanted to get out of the poverty and he wanted to, it's not so much that he wanted to do it to get the girl, but he had all of these dreams that he wanted to fulfill. And he, I mean, he pursued them. I, I'm somewhat of a dreamer myself to a, to a lesser extent. By no means do, am I nearly as creative as P.T. Barnum, at least as portrayed in this film. But you know, I can totally resonate with trying to sleep at night and you've got all these ideas going in your head and you just want to show them to somebody and take mm-hmm. along, take somebody along for the ride. And in Charity's case, he took her along for, literally for the ride of a lifetime and then took all of his patrons and audience members and cast members and what have you all along for a ride for that portion of their life and gave them dignity and, and all that. Yeah. And I think that's the danger in, in a sort of a way. And I, I know I know it absolutely know the way that I'm wired that it's a danger because I'm the kind of person and I, I feel like I could relate to the movie because if I don't have anything that stops me, I don't sleep, I don't eat, I just work. Right. And that's just the way that I'm generated. I, I did it when I was learning to play guitar when I was ten years old. You know, I just you know, it, it seemed like I didn't have friends and somehow I did and actually had girlfriends and I physically don't know how because the majority of my time I spent alone in my room playing guitar. It, that's just the way I'm wired. I still do. You know, I, I'll look up, it'll be seven or eight o'clock and I'm kindly reminded that I need to have dinner, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, so and I think that that's what I took from it is I watched this guy and I, I, I know how he lost his way in a lot of ways through the through the film because what do you do when you're trying to succeed? You just keep trying to succeed. There's no off button. And and unfortunately for some people, it, it takes something tragic or traumatic to get them to turn off. You know, I'm lucky now that I have an eight-year-old that'll plop down in my lap and there's no room for a laptop when that happens. So, yes. you know, you know and, that's, and those are the little blessings. But I, I really related to that part of it. You know, I didn't think it vilified him. I thought it made him just a workaholic, just a guy that couldn't stop going down the road that he dreamed of for so long, which I thought was amazingly transparent in in the way the film was written and produced. Well, and he had something to prove to his father-in-law also Mm -hmm. um, that he could provide her everything that her daddy had. Yeah, and it was a competition. 
Yeah, so he had something to prove. It became an interesting social commentary at our house also. I, I mean, entertainment aside, which it's really high on entertainment. But I think the the social commentary of Zac Efron's character, Phil Carlyle, and the trapeze artist, Zendaya, Zendaya? Zendaya. I Zendaya. Think. Because my girls completely missed the storyline there. Um, until maybe the second or third time through, I, I caught it on the first and then the second or third time I was watching to see what their reaction would be to see if they even, well, reacted or responded to the way his parents would look down on him. And, you know, why did he grab her hand in the opera box? And then when mommy and daddy saw him holding her hand, then he let go. I was trying Mm -hmm. to see if my girls picked up on that. And one of the times through the movie, when we've probably seen it 10 times since Saturday when we saw it the first time, (laughs) there was a moment where one of the girls had to go to the bathroom. So we paused the movie and I I turned to Molly and I said, do you understand like what's happening here? Why is he talking to his parents that way on the stairwell? And, And she's like, no, I don't get it. It's like, well, and, you know, I explained that there's social classes and the silly thing about it was his parents were scorning him for patronizing not only with another class, but another race. Mm -hmm. And when I explained, I was like, yeah, I mean, they're upset with him for being interested in her because simply because their skins aren't the same color. And she looked at me, she got these big eyes. She's like, are you kidding me? That's a thing. And I was like, not anymore. Yeah, it can change from here. And she just had this, wow, what's wrong with you grown up people? You know, I look at the way that that our generation was raised, which was just not what we see today. And my my family, my wife's family is, is a family of a lot of adoptions. I have a nephew from Uganda. I have two nephews or one nephew that has, uh, I'm not sure if it's Chinese. I have a niece she, who's not adopted, but she's special needs. So my, my family makeup on my wife's side is amazingly diverse through all these things. And one of my biggest thank yous to God is that my daughter, my eight-year-old, as friends, these are her cousins and they're not, you know, not all of them are blood related, but she, it does not matter to her. Right. Matter of fact, after John Luke, my nephew from Uganda was adopted. One of my other sister-in-laws was going to have a baby. And I remember Izzy asking Chris, like, well, what color is he going to be? I wonder to her. It was just, a, <laughs> oh, it was that's just all, fantastic. it was all a, a, a beautiful crapshoot of life. And she did not see the color as anything other than just a different shade. There you have it. Part one of this two-part conversational biography with guitarist, DJ, and most of all, my friend, Bradley Ford. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to automatically receive part two in the next episode. Be sure you visit the show notes for this episode at collectedclan.com slash bradleyford1. That's Bradley Ford with the number one. For playlists of songs and shows mentioned in this episode, plus photos and a playlist of his band Bleach. And I'd love to hear from you about any specific follow-ups to this or previous conversations that you'd like to hear. Tweet me at collectedclan. I want to end with a big shout-out to my friends Worldwide Groove Corporation for this episode's original music. The song is Mimosa from their album Chilodisiac Lounge Volume 1. 
Check out more of their music at WorldWideGrooveCorporation.com. Thanks for listening. Now go be you.